If you're new here at Parkview, just welcome you. Um, we, um, this is a place we want you to feel welcome, where you come. And we want this to be a place where it's real, too. When we're struggling, when there's hard things going on, we want to be a place uh, that, that is there for each other. And I love how Dave and Colleen have just approached this. They are uh, so uh, enjoying their lives with God that what God has poured into them has freed them to make these kind of choices and these kind of decisions to live God's life out in front of us and in front of our city. So just keep praying for them in uh, these, these weeks ahead. So thanks for doing that. So um, we are, like I said, we're going to study the book of Amos. So you should be there by now. And so um, Amos is a super uh, interesting book for us. In fact, here's kind of the, if I could say a, a statement, a summary statement of the book of Amos. I'd say this, that Amos is a call to repentance among God's people who have fallen to a heartless and empty devotion to God and who have become financially rich but spiritually poor. So um, here's, here's the reality about God. This morning, when he's looking at this room and he's looking at us, he doesn't necessarily see like our jobs or what we do. Uh, he doesn't see a lot of the ways we try to identify ourselves. He doesn't look at what we're wearing or what we look like. Like I think what's most important to God this morning when he looks at us is that he can see our hearts. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Chronicles 16, 9, that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth so that he can strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. In fact, when they asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He, he, he challenged us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Because here's a powerful dynamic. The way that any one of us could even have a relationship with God shows a ton about God. It shows his grace and his mercy that he lets anybody like us come into a relationship with him. It's, it's his, it's all him that allows any of us to be able to talk to him and have him be our father, right? So, so but on, on our side, what God is looking for is people that need him, that want him, that love him. Like, so God's not going to force you into a relationship with him. But when you come to that spot in your life where you realize, like, you need him. Like, you have nothing. Like, you compared to who he is, you marvel at his holiness and his power and his love, and you just move toward him because you need him. That's, that's a beautiful picture of what God is looking for in our hearts today. And so, but here's the problem. It happens to people in the Bible, and it happens to people in this room, that we can easily drift away from God. Like, I, I, would, I would even say, I wonder, it's summer, like we're halfway through the summer, and sometimes what can happen even in the summer is that summer's kind of kickback mode. It's, you know, let's spend a little more time. Let's, and so maybe we can start drifting and sliding away from God. And the deal is, in our relationship with God, there's only two places. There's only two really descriptions of your heart. You're either running hard after God or you're drifting away from him. Reminds me when I did youth ministry here, one of our favorite trips was a ski trip. And we tried to get as many kids as we could, go, as we could get for a couple days. And so the best place to go at that time was Welch Village. It's in Minnesota. So if Dubuque's like a one on a one to 10 scale, and if Colorado's like a 10 and you're an Iowan, and where are we gonna ski? Like Welch Village was like a three, right? And so that was a draw. But really the better thing about Welch Village was it had cheap cabins. Like it was free to stay there because the cabins were so nasty. Like they were just so rustic and they would stack three bunks up. And so you did not, it was not glamorous, but 
man, for high school kids, like, let's just go ski like crazy. Let's sleep in these cabins, and then let's ski some more the next day. So it was great for that. The other nice thing was about staying there was we got the run of the place at night. So we got to go sledding, or we'd play football on the slopes. And then one thing we always tried to do every year was something called the Lookout Challenge. And that's where we'd send a leader to the top of the hill with a $20 bill, and we'd line up the kids at the bottom and just say, go. Like the first one to get to the top of that hill gets the $20 bill. It was full contact. You could do whatever you want. So usually cross-country runners and swimmers would win. Like the football guys and the wrestlers would maybe pin a few people down at the beginning, but it took people with stamina to get to the top, right? And so I did it a few times, hard to believe maybe looking at me now, but like that had to be one of the hardest things I've ever done physically because it's Minnesota. It's usually zero degrees. You're running up a hill, so you're deep breathing in super cold air, your lungs start burning, and then the especially treacherous thing about this is about the last 20 yards or so, we're kind of straight up and usually packed down snow and a little bit ice at that time of day. So you're already up there, your legs are already burning, your lungs are burning, and there's that last little bit, and so you would take a couple steps up, and if you even just pause for a second, you're just sliding back down. And it was super hard to just finish that last stretch and reach up and grab that $20 bill, which I never did. All right, I got third once, I think. But that's the best. So, um, but I've always thought that's such, a, that's such a graphic picture of really what our spiritual life is like. Again, any growth we achieve, any relationship with God we attain to is because he's merciful and gracious. But yet God is looking for us to have wholehearted devotion to him and to be pursuing him. And the best spot in our lives is when we see how awesome he is and how needy we are and we respond to that. And so I really do think if Jesus could give us an assessment of where our hearts this morning, he would honestly tell us, you're either running hard after me or you're, you're, you're starting to slide away. And so I want you this summer as we go through the book of Amos to consider this like a spiritual EKG. Like if you were to go to a cardiologist and he were to strap you up with some wires to see how your heart is doing, physical heart, what if God this series this summer was to use these passages to really show us what's going on in our hearts? And are we truly a people that are, are running after God? And so let me read the first couple of verses of Amos, and then we'll just uh, kind of, this, this will kind of set us up and, and introduce us to Amos and kind of what he's doing here. So Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, and the vision he saw concerning uh, Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam the son of Johash was king of Israel. Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. You know what I just realized? Somebody told me last service that what I read to you didn't match on the slides. I'm sorry, I was supposed to check that. I didn't. So I read from the NIV, the slides were ESV. Okay, sorry about that. It's still God's word, okay? So, and here is... Here's what God is saying here to us. So just a couple of things. There's a lot of facts packed into just those two verses. First of all, um, it introduces us to Amos. He's a shepherd. He's just kind of an average guy. Like in that day, shepherds were not even close to the top 
of the social spectrum. They were usually near the bottom. So he's a shepherd. You also see here that there's two kings named. That means there's two kingdoms. And so this is during a sad period of time where God's people actually divided themselves into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Israel was the name of the northern kingdom, Judah of the southern kingdom. And so what makes Amos especially kind of unique, was he's not only kind of a lowly shepherd, but he was from Judah and he was sent to prophesy to the other team, to, to, to Israel. And so immediately, and you'll see it in chapter 7, like they were like, who are you? Like, why don't you just go back to your sheep? Like, shut up. Who do you think you are? And so, and so that's kind of what's already pushing against Amos. But yet he had a message from God, and he very courageously traveled into the other kingdom and proclaimed uh, this, this great book of prophecy. And so that's a little bit about who he is. Um, and so, yeah, there's the two kingdoms. We see that. Um, and then there's this, there's this image of God roaring from Zion, from Jerusalem. And so the roar of God, this is God speaking to his people. And there's different ways that God speaks in the Bible. There's sometimes like it says it'll, he'll speak with a small, still voice. Or that God will encourage in different ways. God will encourage through his people. Or God speaks to us through his word. But you, you, you sense here, right in the first two verses, that God's message in Amos is pretty serious because he's equating it to the roar of a lion. Like this is a loud pronouncement from God. It's like God trying to wake up a slumbering people who are drifting from him. And that's a dangerous place for his people to be. So you'll see, this, you'll see an intensity in this book that reflects the love of God. It concerns him when his people are slipping away. It's like if you're a parent and one of your kids begins to waddle into the street, you're not going to go, um, if you think about it, honey, you might want to stop going into the street. No, you're yelling, right? Stop. And so that's what the book of Amos is. And even on top of that, you're going to see that there's some pretty heinous things going on from God's people. And again, God in his love isn't going to tolerate sin and abuse and injustice. And so this is a super important book to the heart of God. He is roaring toward his people in this book, okay? And so, and so um, we'll, we'll just jump on now. And so the next section, uh, basically chapter 1, verse 3, down through the end of chapter 2, uh, has a bunch of uh, prophecies against eight different nations, okay? And you saw in the video earlier that it's going to mention seven of the nations around Israel, and at the very end, he's going to just zoom in on Israel. And the rest of the book is a prophecy against Israel. And so um, the way Amos starts is he just starts identifying different sins. So I'm going to call those the sins out there. And then he's going to address the sins in here. Okay. So let me just give you a glimpse. We're going to not read what he says to all eight nations. Let me just read you the first two just so you get a feel of what's going on. So chapter 1, verse 3, this is, it says, This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Haziel uh, that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. Again, I realize, I'm sorry, I'm reading from a slightly different version, but we're in the ballpark here. Um, I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. Now he's going to Gaza. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. 
And I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. And he goes on like that six more times, six more nations. So there's a formula he follows. You saw it there, the three sins even for four. What that's an expression of is like their sin is just abounding. Like three would have been a number of fullness. But he's saying it's not just three sins. Man, you're, these are four. Like you guys are just heaping over with, with sin. And again, he hits the ones that are around Israel. And then he lands the last one on Israel. Okay. And so... Um, I want to notice one other thing too. So far, all the nations that he addresses, the first six have no relationship with God. They don't know God. They don't worship the God of Israel. And so, and so what you're going to see is a theme throughout the book of Amos and even in your own life, that when there is no relationship with God, if there's nothing vertical, I'm going to throw vertical and horizontal at you. Vertical is this. Horizontal is this. Okay, right? So if things are broken vertically between you and God, that, that always plays out then into your relationship with others. Like if you are broken here, you're going to be broken here. And so a lot of the sins that you'll see as he goes around to the other nations are things that they are doing to other people, the way they are abusing the poor, the way they are just indulging themselves in violence or in accumulating more and more things at the expense of other people. And so when you're broken in your relationship with God, the way you treat others uh, is absolutely heinous. And that's what God hates. And so there's a couple things I want to do just before we keep moving through this passage as we introduce this book. Let's ask and answer the question, what is sin? Then let's talk a little bit more about this sin out there, like that we see in these other nations. And then we're going to have to come to grips with the sin in here. Like when he addresses the sin in Israel, he addresses the sin in people that know God, okay? And so those are the kind of where we're going to be going for the next few minutes. But let's even just pull back and ask that question, well, what is sin? And I encourage you, like this is an answer you're going to need to have ready um, so, you know, like when somebody asks you, how was your vacation? Usually some people want just the five second, like it was great, good. And that's all they want. Like they just want to know it was good and they really don't care beyond that, right? But then they might say, oh, well, what did you do? Where did you go? So they might want a 30 second answer. But then you might also get the people that want to actually come over and go out for coffee and look at your pictures, right? So I feel like we need to be ready. If you are a follower of Jesus, you believe in the Bible, um, you're going to get a lot of questions thrown at you about sin. And the most common one I'm hearing these days is, is fill in the blank a sin. Like if people do this, is that a sin? Or if people live this way, is that a sin? Do people like this go to heaven? And so I feel like it's really tough because you, I, I feel like that I'm getting pegged right away. And like, okay, what are you going to say? And if you answer that wrong, then I don't care about you or your God or what you think. Like, I really feel like it's on us today to be very clear and be very accurate. And so let me give you a stab at how you begin. But that's, that's kind of a summer assignment. How would you define sin if people were to ask you that today? In the five-second, 30-second, and let's sit down and have coffee version, okay? So here's where I would go. Like, so as Amos is pointing out sins in the nation, sin, I would go back to the clear beginning of the Bible, that we were created by God in his image, uh, and that God loves us. Like the first thing he did when he created the first man and woman uh, is he blessed them. 
Like you look at the Genesis 1, out of all that God made, you guys, we are the pinnacle of his creation. And his bent toward us was good. He blessed us, all right? And so that's, that's, that kind of describes who God is. And it describes who we are. We're created in his image, meant to be blessed by him. But then in chapter 3 in Genesis, you see the first man and woman uh, believe a lie about this God. That this God is not good. Um, this God cannot be trusted. And that it's really up to us to go and find our own identity apart from him. It's really up to us to go and find out how to fulfill ourselves apart from him. And that's the essence of sin. That's what the first man and woman were tempted to do. And so when they, when they violated God's law back in Genesis 3, that's exactly what they were doing, rejecting God and trying to find their, identi their own identity and fulfillment in, on their own instead of trusting God. And so that did a couple things. Uh, first, it offended a holy God. And so here's the other thing I would do quickly if I was talking to somebody asking me that question, I would put myself in there right away. If you've been around me before, sometimes you'll hear me say, uh, I'll be first in the line. Like if you want to talk about sinners in this room, I'm number one, I'm front of the line. So if I'm talking to somebody that doesn't understand Christianity, I want them to understand quickly that I'm one of those. Like I'm a sinner too, okay? So sin is when we do our thing and not God's. It's when I reject God's plan. I try to find my own identity, my own fulfillment on my own. So that offends a holy God. Um, and it just shows amazing pride and arrogance that I'm, I'm better than God or I know more than God. And um, what that also does is it cuts me off from the life that God intends me to have. I'm not able to experience the blessing that he has for me, all right? And so we can talk more, or you can think through that and how to do that on your own. You might say, that's more than five seconds. I know it was a little more than five seconds, but I think you've got to be ready, like, to explain what, what sin is. And so as we continue to look in Amos, uh, that's exactly what, what these people have done. And so some of these are nations, again, that don't know God. Like, they don't have the Bible. They didn't have prophets. They didn't have Moses. So one thing that's clear about the heart of God is that he loves those nations, right? And so there was, there's another prophet named Jonah that went to preach to uh, Nineveh. They were one of those out there countries living in sin. And God's desire was that they would repent and turn to him. And they, they did through the reluctant prophet named Jonah. You need to look at that story if you don't know that. So, so even though God is seeing the sin in the neighboring nations, he still loves those people. He still wants to call them in to a relationship with him, okay? So, so that's what sin is. It's, it's, it's offending a holy God who created us, loves us, wants to bless us. And so the sins out there are super easy to spot. Like if you look, like just like the Israelites, every time Amos is mentioning the sins of Damascus and Gaza, they're going, yeah, man, those guys are really bad. Man, I can't stand those guys. These guys are so wicked. And the same thing can happen in us. Like we can be so more aware of the sin around us that we are totally ignoring the sin that's right here. And so, and so, um, and all sin grieves God. Uh, so, so what you see in uh, Amos down to chapter 2, verse 5, is that he's mentioning all the nations around Israel. But now, starting in verse 6, he spends most of this time, 11 verses, just talking about the sin of Israel, the sin in here, all right? And so let me, let me read these to you, and you'll see a different tone, and there's a different kind of thing that God points out uh, with Israel, all right? So starting in verse 6, uh, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even four. So remember, right now, these people are probably shocked. Like, what? 
You're going to start talking about Israel? What about, let's keep talking about Gaza and Damascus. It's like, no, no, no. Same formula for three sins, even four, of Israel. I will not relent. And here's what they're doing. Uh, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice for the oppressed. This is God's own people. Guys, this is especially heinous. And like I said earlier, like if there's a breakdown in your vertical relationship with God, there's going to be a breakdown in your horizontal treatment of people. All right? So what God is putting a finger on right away is saying, Israel, you are broken in your relationship with me. And the way I can tell that is that you are uh, despising the poor. You're oppressing people. You're doing that for your own selfish benefit. You're hoarding up more and more for yourself, and you're denying justice for people who are oppressed. Then he's nailing them with the same kind of thing he was nailing the nations around them, all right? It gets worse. The next verse picks up. It says, Father and Son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Guys, this is absolutely heinous. Like, uh, there is evidence of sexual sin, sexual exploitation going on among God's people. What's especially heinous here is that the role of the father among God's people is to train his son to follow God and to follow God's ways, to respect women, to respect God's boundaries for sex. That the dad, the man, the father is meant to lead in that way courageously. But we are so corrupt now that, that not only is dad ignoring to train his son in godliness, but the dad is pulling his son into the same sexual addiction and sin that he is in, the same kind of sexual exploitation. Absolutely heinous. That's why he's roaring. That's why this is a huge deal to God. God's people have drifted so far. Okay, verse 8. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Those are imageries of idolatry. They're worshiping other gods in other ways. And this is in spite of what God has done for them. Look, verse 9, he says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. And though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the wilderness and I gave you the land of the Amorites. He's saying, look at all that I've done for you as a people. I let you out of Egypt. I led you into a promised land. I defeated your enemies and now you're worshiping other gods. Like so, again, he's just unveiling in their hearts that they've lost their first love, that they are not wholeheartedly pursuing the true God. They have now drifted. They've rejected that God and they're drifting and worshiping uh, other gods in other ways. Then he says this, I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. God says, you know what I've provided for you as spiritual leaders? The Nazarites who showed you what it's like to be fully devoted to God and the prophets who I brought to you so that they could remind you of my truth. And you guys have totally rejected them both. Like you, you are, you're, you're just totally disregarding the Nazarites and you're telling the prophets to shut up. And so... Um, there, there's just, he's just got them. Like he's, it's almost like he's calling them on trial and just listing the evidences that they have drifted from God. They have taken a spiritual EKG and their heart is completely corrupt. And so, um, 
let, let, me just take, let me just do something a little similar with us, but maybe more in our context today, okay? Like, let me do a spiritual EKG for us that would look more like we live in Iowa City in 2019 than we live in Israel in 750 BC, okay? So, and what if I put these around the um, five traits that we're beginning to use as leadership here? We call them our DNA traits of a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus will have these five traits, okay? So the first trait is enjoying God's presence. Again, you see this throughout the Gospels. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. So enjoying God's presence. Let me ask, like in the last month or in this summer so far, like would you say that's indicative of your heart? Like do you enjoy God's presence? Are you creating time and space where you're praying to him and you're just enjoying him, you're praising him? Like, are you singing? Are you worshiping him? So uh, that's a good kind of today EKG question to ask. How about the next one is live God's story. That means that we're a people hungry for the Bible. Like we're, we're spending time reading this book and not just reading it, but live God's story means we're putting it to practice. We're, we're really focusing on obedience to the word of God. Like how's that been for the last month or so? I heard a, a sobering statistic this week that among Bible-believing Christians, only about 14% of them in our country are reading the Bible on a regular basis. That, that's scary, okay? The longer I find that I'm drifting from this book, that's a good sign that I'm drifting from God, okay? So enjoying God's presence, living God's story, those are our two vertical ones we have as traits, right? The rest are horizontal. The third trait is are we loving God's people like, how would you say the relationships are going in your life? And even to the point of, are you pursuing relationship? Are you pursuing community with others? How are you treating people around you? Again, vertical, horizontal is connected. That if you're loving God, you're going to be loving people. So how are you doing it? loving God's people? Another one of our traits is sharing God's gifts. Like, the more you realize that God has blessed you, and you are just, he's your provider, you have nothing to fear, that frees you up to be generous and to share. So how would you say in the last month or in this year, how generous have you been? Like with your time or with serving or you hear of a need and you respond to that need or into your giving uh, to the church. Like how, how generous have you been? Sharing God's gifts. And the last one is serving God's world. And what we mean by that is sharing the gospel. Like, again, you realize how much God has given you through Jesus. And so now you're doing all you can. Like, you're praying for friends of yours that don't know Jesus. You're looking for opportunities to share Jesus. And again, another one of those sobering statistics about our country, that Christians uh, in our country, only about 1% or 2% will actually lead another person to Jesus if this is an average year. Guys, that's that's another wake-up call. Like, are we, are we truly connected here with God if we're not truly connected this way and really doing all we can to help point more and more people to Jesus? So I just got to be honest with you. When we read the minor prophets, like we're reading, Isaiah, reading Amos this summer, this is going to challenge us. Like, you don't, you don't see a lot of precious moments, verses from Amos, and there's a reason, right? So, but this is, a good, this is a good thing for us to allow God to dig into our hearts. And I want you to know, I just want to wrap up with this, that as these kind of sins are exposed in our hearts, what do we do with them? Okay, a lot of people might just say, well, I don't want to read Amos anymore. It's like, no, 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 let's dig into there. Let's let God speak to us. So, but what do we do 
when our sins are exposed like this. And I want to go to the image the Bible uses of lions, okay? There's two lions that the Bible talks about. And so Amos talked about the roar of a lion. So I looked this up this week, that, that when a lion roars, that roar can be heard up to five miles away by human ears. Like that's, a loud, that's one of the loudest noises in the animal kingdom. And they said it's like 20 times higher than the average lawnmower. They haven't heard my lawnmower, but it's up there, you know. So, so it is a very loud, very loud noise. And so, but when a lion roars, it does one of two things. If you are that lion's enemy or prey, you are absolutely freaked out. Like that is meant to terrorize you. If you're an enemy, that means get out. Or if you're a prey, that means lock it down because I'm coming to get you. I'm going to eat you, right? And so there's that. But there's a beautiful picture too that if you are linked to that lion, if you are in that lion's pride, like if you are one of the cubs that that lion is called to defend, when you hear that roar, that brings you comfort. Like that brings you, okay, yeah, I feel safe. I feel secure because the one who is watching over me is very powerful. And so, so there's two lion images you see in the Bible. First Peter 5.8 warns us to be sober-minded, to be watchful, because our adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So there's that imagery of the, the same enemy that got the first man and woman to sin against God, who tempted them, is the same enemy that hates you, hates me, and hates us trusting God. So he's going to do everything he can to tempt us to sin, all right? And so sin is a huge deal. That roar of that lion really is meant to paralyze, intimidate, and eventually kill us because it cuts us off from God. Sin, sin will kill us. It will kill our spiritual lives. It will kill our relational lives with people in our lives. So that, that is a lion that, that is out there, but there's a greater lion and to see this lion, you go to the last book of prophecy in the Bible, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, this is an amazing book where one of Jesus' disciples named John had an image, had a vision of what heaven is like. And in, in Revelation chapter 5, he saw the throne of God and he saw the peoples gathered around. And at the beginning of this chapter, there was great fear and great sadness because the one on the throne was holding a scroll and this scroll represented all the sins uh, that we have all committed, even the book of Amos time up to today, and God's plan to deal with those sins. And let me just start reading in verse 3. It said, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open that scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. So that's kind of our condition before a holy God. Like when every one of us has committed sin before, uh, we, we have no hope. Like we have no answer before a holy God. But in verse 5, it says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And the rest of that chapter is a beautiful picture of Listen to this. People from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation around the throne of Jesus, celebrating and worshiping Jesus, the line of Judah, the one who roared from the cross and the empty tomb, defeating sin and death, our greatest enemies, and who now gives us access to a holy God. That lion has roared. 
It has defeated your enemies. So now when your sin is exposed by a book as powerful as Amos, you allow God to use that to show you the sin in your life, but you know exactly where to go with that sin then. You go to the Lion of Judah who loved you so much that when you were a sinner, he died for you, he roared, defeated sin and death, and now welcomes you into his presence. And so um, may this book, as we study it this summer, just bring us into a more authentic relationship with God. And it's going to be all through Jesus. And the beauty is, on the other side of studying a book like this, is that what a book like Amos does is it really challenges us to look horizontally. How are we treating the poor? How am I, what am I doing with my stuff? Like, am I, how am I doing with uh, injustice around me? Am I really devoting my life for the oppressed? Because the more you realize the more you are on track with God and that he is good and he has provided for you, that frees you not to live for yourself, not to draw boundaries about how generous you'll be or who you'll help or who you won't, but those boundaries disappear because you are loved by one so great. You know, that's, as Dave and Colleen have told their story, that, their story is evidence of a couple who just know the love of God, like as hard as this is for them, their thought isn't for themselves. Their thought is for other children that Darius can help. Um, their thought has been, let's give Jesus glory through what's happening through us. That's a, that's a be- beautiful picture, you guys, of people that just truly are in relationship with God and know the love of God. And how many other opportunities like just do we have as a people today where people are just honestly looking for justice, looking for what's true, looking for authentic like people responding to needs around them. Uh, this is a day we need the book of Amos, all right? And so, but, but please may the book of Amos point us to the lion who has roared and who has defeated sin and death. And uh, may our study the book of Amos Help us have just a bigger and bigger picture of how amazing and how awesome Jesus is. So let me pray for us just to wrap up. God, I thank you that you love us enough that you're not afraid to roar when we need a roar, when we need to be woken up, when we may be a people that are drifting and sliding from you, when we may be kind of lethargic and apathetic. I thank you that that's a big deal to you because you love us. You want our whole hearts. You don't want half our hearts and you... It just crushes your heart when you see us living uh, unjustly or living in ways that oppress or overlook people. And so just call us into that genuine spot where you show us our sin, but then you set us free by the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, I thank you that anyone in this room can find life in you. Just like what John saw in heaven, people from everywhere, every tribe, language, people, nation, people from all backgrounds are there in heaven because of Jesus. And so God, even if there's just one person in this room today that doesn't get that, I pray this would be the day that they say, Jesus, I I need you to forgive me and set me free. And thank you for dying for me. So we love you. Teach us uh, through this book this summer. In your great name we pray. Amen.